How many are thankful for the blood today? Amen. Praise God. Turn in your Bibles today to Genesis 22 and verse 14. As I mentioned earlier, today is Palm Sunday, and it's the day that we celebrate the triumphal entry into uh, Jerusalem of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to talk about that in more detail tonight. I do encourage you, if you if you don't make it back on Sunday night, you're missing something. And on Wednesday night, you're missing something. Every service is different, and we get something out of each one. So I encourage you to be a part of those. And tonight, we're going to be preaching a more traditional uh, Palm Sunday uh, sermon tonight. But I felt like going a little bit different direction this morning, and so I wanted to share this with you uh, this morning. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 14, And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. I want to speak to you on the subject just taken right from this scripture. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we need you this very moment. We're asking you to anoint your word, O God, and anoint, uh, Lord, not only me to speak your word, but anoint us to hear your word and let it hit its target. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can you lift your hand and thank the Lord for his word today? Abraham had waited a long, long time. He had clung to a promise. In fact, he and Sarah had even gotten a little bit ahead of God, and he had a child that he thought he could substitute for the promised child, but God was still faithful. Aren't you glad that even when we're not faithful, God is still faithful? And so God was still faithful to Abraham, and he allowed he and Sarah to have the promised son Isaac even though Abraham was up in years and Sarah had been barren and now was well past childbearing years if she had not been barren. And they gave birth to a son, Isaac, name it Laughter. And as Isaac began to grow, can you imagine the pride and the joy that Abraham and Sarah had in him? Not only just the fact that they had had a son, but the fact that the promises of God, all the promises of God that God had made to Abraham that is that he was going to possess that land, that his descendants were going to be as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. They were all wrapped up in Isaac, and Isaac began to grow. And when he got on up in his teenage years, the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me in the mountains of Moriah. And I don't know what Abraham went through uh, internally inside of his own heart and mind, I don't know what he said to Sarah or what he said to Isaac for that matter. I don't know what kind of discussions he had with the Lord leading up to that, but from the biblical account, it just seems that without hesitation, he obeyed the Lord. What allowed him to do that, the New Testament tells us, you know, the a new covenant, the New Testament is in the old concealed, and the old covenant is in the new revealed. And in the New Testament, it gives us insight to what was in Abraham's mind. He had faith that even if he sacrificed Isaac, that God 
would raise him from the dead. That's what gave him that ability. So he takes Isaac, he takes a couple of servants, he takes a mule, he takes or a donkey, and he takes uh, some uh, uh, firewood and all of those things that he needed, and they get up on the mountain, and finally it's just he and Isaac going along there with the provisions, and Isaac looks around and says, Daddy, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, we've got everything we need except we don't have a sacrifice. And I don't know that Abraham knew the weight of what he was saying, but here's what he said, the Lord shall provide for himself a lamb. So they get up on top of Mount Moriah, and here's the thing, it not only required the faith of Abraham and his heavenly father, it required the faith of Isaac and his earthly father. For him to say, son, stretch out here on the altar. He wasn't a baby, he wasn't a toddler. He was an adolescent, he could have run away, he could have fought, but he stretched out on the altar willingly. And then Abraham took his knife, and I hate to have to do this, but we live in such a confused world. Let me say that God has never demanded human sacrifice except with the exception of his own son that he received as a sacrifice. So Abraham stretched out and God stopped him. The voice of God stopped him. The hand of God stopped him and said to him, Abraham, don't do your son any harm. I was testing you to see if you would withhold anything from me. You've passed the test. Now there's a ram that's caught in the thicket by its horns. Take that ram and sacrifice it instead of your son Isaac. And Abraham looked up at this mountain uh, that he was on and he said, he named that place Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord is our provider. But he particularly talked about in that place, he said, the, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. God provides in this mountain. It's kind of sad that that name of God, Jehovah Jireh, among a lot of Christians has come to mean that the Lord's going to provide me a Cadillac or the Lord's going to provide me a new house or the Lord's going to provide me a raise at work. Indeed, everything that we have, in fact, the Scripture says He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And everything that we have, every good thing comes down from above. It comes from the Father of lights. And God does provide for His children. But I'm going to tell you, He's Jehovah Jireh, but He gave us something a whole lot better than a new ride or a new pad. He gave us His only begotten Son to be the provision and the sacrifice for our sins. So Abraham says, in this mountain, His provision is going to be seen. In this mountain, it shall be seen. Now, we use mountains to talk about a lot of things. The Bible uses Scripture to talk about mountains. Sometimes it's talking about mountains. Sometimes mountains represent authority. Sometimes mountains represent nations. And indeed, the mount, there's a lot of mountains in Scripture. There is a Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. There's Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal where the people of God crossed over into the promised land. And on Mount Gerizim, there were those that were speaking the blessings of obeying the law. And on Mount Ebal, those that were proclaiming the curses if you disobeyed God's law. There is, of course, Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire out of heaven. 
and there's Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where Elijah went, and there was a whirlwind, and there was an earthquake, and there was a fire, and there was all of that, and God was not any of that, and then God spoke to him in a still, small voice. In Jesus' life, mountains played an important part. In fact, we start off at the earthly ministry of Jesus, that uh, he goes to the mountain that is called the Mount of Temptation. The Bible says that there were often times he would withdraw himself and go up into a mountain to be alone and pray. One time he was up in the mountain praying and down uh, on the, the Sea of Galilee there was a great storm and Jesus saw them struggling and he came down off that mountain and walked on the water to where they were at. One of Jesus' most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, happened on a mount. And then of course there's the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John saw Jesus meeting with Elijah and Moses and the veil of his glory was dropped enough that he shone like the sun at its peak. Now we alternately, in our own conversation, we alternately use mountains to either mean great victories or to mean great challenges. Sometimes we talk about a mountain, a mountaintop experience, that on the top of the mountain, how you doing? I'm on the top of the mountain. But other times we talk about the challenge of climbing the mountain. That I got one more valley to cross, one more hill to climb. In fact, uh, in that way, uh, we see that the Syrians said of God's people, He's a God of the mountains. If we get them in the valley, we can defeat them. In fact, we read, uh, we have that great uh, southern gospel song. It said life is easy when you're up on the mountain and you've got peace of mind like you've never known but then things change and you're down in the valley but don't lose faith because you're never alone for the God on the mountain is still God in the valley and when things go wrong he makes them right because the God of the good time is still God in the bad times and the God of the day is still God in the night. But sometimes we look at the mountain as a challenge. In fact, I remember when I was growing up, there used to be, anybody remember, there used to be a lot of commercials on TV that you could send off for certain uh, uh, records. Anybody remember records? Albums. And there was one that always played about a black gospel music. And the one song that they always played was, I'm coming up, Lord, on the rough side of the mountain. Anybody remember that? I'm coming up on the rough side of the mountain. Marty Robbins wrote and performed a song, and later on Elvis Presley probably more famously uh, performed it. He said, I was born in the heat of the desert. My mother died giving me birth. I was deprived of the love of a father. I was blamed for the loss of his wife. I've been in a prison for things that I've never done. But this time, Lord, you gave me a mountain, a mountain I may never climb. It isn't just a hill any longer. You gave me a mountain this time. Sometimes we talk about mountains as challenges that we have to face in life. But what's the biblical response to a mountain when you face it in your life? What should be our biblical response? First of all, it occurs to me that many times we are climbing mountains that we ought to be moving that we are busy climbing mountains that we ought to be moving. You remember Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty three, 23, 
Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall receive what he saith. Whatsoever he saith, if you say to the mountain, Be thou removed. Now, that is an idiomatic expression. Yes, it's true that that can happen to a literal mountain, but it doesn't just mean a literal mountain. It means whatever's standing in your way to your destiny, whatever's standing in the way of what God's called you to be and do, whatever challenge you face in the life. Sometimes we're busy trudging up the mountains that we ought to be moving. There are things that stand in our way that we don't have to go through. There are valleys that we don't have to trudge over. There are mountains we don't have to climb. There are battles that we don't have to fight. We're doing it needlessly because we're not looking at the mountain. As someone said, don't run to God and tell God how big the mountain is. Run to the mountain and tell the mountain how big your God is. Some mountains we are climbing that we don't have to climb, that the Lord can move for us. I remember a story of an elderly woman that was sitting on her front porch and right across the highway from where she was, there was a hill. And it wasn't a pretty hill. It was just an ugly, dirt, clawed hill. And on the other side of that hill was a beautiful view. Green pasture land, a river flowing. She couldn't see it from her porch because that Oh, ugly heel was in the way. And something spoke to her and said, You know, why don't you claim what the Word of God says? Say to the mountain, be moved. And so she took God at His Word and she claimed the promise of God and she said, Lord, move this mountain. And she went to bed and the next morning she jumped out of bed and she went and pulled open the curtains and looked out and there was that same ugly heel and she said, Yep, it's still there, just like I expected. Right? She got what she expected. She didn't expect the mountain to move. Can I tell you that God will move mountains in our lives? John 14, 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. John 16, 23, 24, And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say to you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it unto you. Hitherto you've asked nothing in my name, ask, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Matthew 7, 7, ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be open unto you. We're climbing mountains that we ought to be moving in faith. There are things that we're battling that we don't have to battle. I remember hearing about a church. I don't know. It's probably just a story. But I remember hearing about a church up in, in rural Tennessee or somewhere that they had built a nice new building, and they were so excited. They were a congregation of about 300. They were so excited to that nice new building, and yet the building inspector came by and revealed to them something that they had not known. And that is that if they were going to have that size of building before they could have open it, they had to have enough parking and they had not put in their budget and they didn't have any money to pay for parking and over next to them was a hill. So even if they had wanted 
uh, to put parking there. There was no place to put it. But the pastor called a prayer meeting. And about 25 of the 300 showed up. But they prayed and they claimed God's word. That if they say unto the mountain, Be thou removed and cast in the midst of the sea, it shall be done. And in claiming God's word, they prayed, believed. The pastor closed it out and said, Don't worry about it. We have believed, we've trusted, we've done what God said do. God will make a way somehow. That was on Sunday night. On Tuesday morning, there was a man stopped by in a suit and said, I don't know if y'all are interested in this or not, but in this next little town over here, we're building a grocery store, and we're looking for some dirt in order to lay down as a foundation. Do you mind if we move this hill over here? We'll pay you for it. And the mountain was moved and they paid them enough to do the paving because they trusted God that when you say to the mountain, be thou removed and cast into the sea, it shall be done. Now what kind of great faith, what kind of huge belief does it require to have mountain moving faith? Well, Jesus answered it in Matthew 17, 20. He said, because of your unbelief, but verily I say to you, if you shall have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say unto the mountain, be thou removed from yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. It does not take great faith to move great mountains. It takes little faith in a great big God to move the mountains. We don't have to climb those mountains. Amen. Zerubbabel, who was the governor over uh, Israel, had a mountain in his life. The temple was laying in rubble. It was laying in, in, uh, in absolute uh, disaster. And it was to him a great big mountain. And he didn't know how in the world it was going to be done. And this is found in Zechariah chapter 4. And the Lord spoke to him and said, Listen, Zerubbabel, you're troubled because you don't know. You don't feel like you're up to the task. But I want you to understand something. This job doesn't require your ingenuity. Because it's not going to be by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And I want you, Zerubbabel, to look at that mountain and don't start trying to figure out how many cubic feet you've got to move, but look to it and say, grace, grace. And if you'll speak to the mountain, I'll move the mountain. In fact, it's going to become a plain. I'm telling you that Christians are struggling and wore out because we're climbing mountains that we ought to be moving. We don't have to climb every mountain in life. We don't have to face every challenge in life. We don't have to fight every battle in life. We can speak with faith and let God move the mountain and we can see the victory of the Lord. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Amen. Not only are we climbing mountains that we ought to be moving, but many times we are cursing mountains that we ought to be claiming. We're cursing mountains that we ought to be claiming. Numbers chapter 13. Moses had sent out spies to spy out the land. Twelve spies, one from every tribe of Israel. Ten of them came back and said, we're like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we are in their sight. We can't do it. But Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, we're well able. In fact, verse 30 of, of chapter 13 says that Caleb stilled the people and said, let's go up at once and possess it. 
for we are well able to overcome it. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24, God had spoken and said, this generation is going to have to wander around in the wilderness until they all die, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And he said this about Caleb, Caleb's going to make it because he has a different spirit. He has another spirit within him, and he's followed me fully. Now listen, during that 40 years, for 40 years there was a whole generation that was wandering in the desert, with an A, wandering. But Caleb wasn't wandering while others were wandering. He was wandering with an O. He was wondering what it was going to be like to possess that land. He was wondering what it was going to be like to be on top of the mountain. For 40 years he kept a dream alive. For 40 years he held on to the promise. Finally they go over into the promised land. And he says, well, you know, I can't leave the rest of them uh, un, you know, without any help. So I'm going to go. And he spent the next five years helping Joshua and the other tribes secure their lands. And now it's 45 years later. This is found in Joshua 14. It's 45 years later since he was promised that possession. And 45 years later he goes to Joshua. He's now 85. He said, Josh, you remember back when we went and spied out the land? You know, I was 40 years old then. And he said, God made me a promise then. You remember that? God through Moses gave me a promise. Now listen, I've come in here. I wandered around for 40 years. I've fought with you for five years. But now I want you to know I've got a promise that's mine. And he said, I'm as strong now as I was 45 years ago. So give me this my mountain. That's the attitude that he had. Listen, I want you to know there's some people in here that you think life's passed you by. You think your only opportunity to ever do anything for God is gone. You think that everything that was, was promised to you is something you possessed in your past. In fact, you're ready to die and go to heaven having had a history of just wandering in the wilderness. But can I tell you, it doesn't matter if you're 8 or 80. The promises of God are for sure and certain. And you can say by faith, give me this. This by mountain. You see, the, 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 the ten spies, unfaithful spies, were cursing what Caleb was claiming. That happened on another mountain. There was a mountain right in the center of all that, that Israel had possessed. For 500 years, that mountain had been a stronghold of a foreign people, the Jebusites possessed that mountain. In fact, in the book of Judges, there was a Levite that came through and he said, I ain't going to stay here. This ain't our territory. I don't want to stay in Jebus. I don't want to stay in that city, that mountain city. But David had a different idea. David, who had, had grown up in the shadow of that fortified city, he had grown up in Bethlehem with that mountain off in the distance. And when David became king, he said, you see that mountain over there? One of these days I'm going to climb that mountain. He said to his people, whoever can get that mountain will become the chief among you. And his old bloody cousin Joab said, I can do it. And he had to, he had to go up through the gutter, it said. To possess that mountain. 
and to defeat the Jebusites. By the way, David renamed that mountain city. He named it the city of peace, Jerusalem. And he made it the capital of Israel because he claimed what others had cursed. He claimed that mountain. In fact, here's the thing about it. According to the way Jews believe, that mountain city that he claimed, same spot where Abraham stretched Isaac out on the altar. It's Mount Moriah. And Abraham said, this is where God's provision is going to be seen. Not only are we climbing mountains, we ought to be moving, and cursing mountains, we ought to be claiming. But listen to me. We're avoiding the mountain that we ought to be embracing. We're avoiding the mountain that we ought to be embracing. On this day that we remember and celebrate Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we remember that he started out that morning on a mountain, the Mount of Olives. And from the peak of that mountain, he could look across the Kidron Valley and he could see Jerusalem. He could see the Temple Mount. There he saw the headquarters of the Jewish faith. There he saw the temple built over that, they believe, over that same spot where, Mo, where Abraham would have sacrificed Isaac. Not only that, but looking down from his peak, he could look across the Kidron Valley and he could see the imperial might of Rome right there adjacent to the temple was the Antonian fortress that housed the Roman soldiers. On that same mountain was Pilate's praetorium. That's the place that Jesus would be dragged before Pilate and judged by him. All of that, as Jesus began to ride down that ancient pathway into the city, of Jerusalem. But as Jesus looked across and saw the temple and saw the Antonian fortress and saw the praetorium, he was looking past that. He was looking back behind the temple mount, back over north behind that. Because there Solomon, when he had built that great temple, had taken the north end of that Mount Moriah and had started to quarry stones, huge, giant, several-ton stones that are still there to this day. And when they quarried those stones, all of that work had scarred that north end of the mountain so that to look upon it, it looked like a skull. So the Hebrews started calling it in their language Golgotha. And the 
Romans called it in Latin, Calvary. And Jesus looked beyond all of that to that mountain. And he didn't run from it, he ran to it. He didn't avoid it, he embraced it. He said in John 23, uh, 12, 23 through 27, Jesus answered them and said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily I say to you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me where I am. There shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. When Jesus had taken his disciples up in the shadow of another mountain, way up in the north of, of Israel, he had asked them, who do men say that I am? And some said, you're John the Baptist or Jeremiah or Elijah reincarnated or John the Baptist. And he said, who do I, you say that I am? And Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, Simon, you're blessed. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven and upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And when that happened, Jesus turned his face like a flint south to Jerusalem. And in that moment, he says, now I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter says, not so, Lord. No, no. And he said, get thee behind me, Satan. I want you to know that if the Jews had not betrayed him, if the Romans had not arrested him, Jesus would have run and jumped on the cross if he had to. Yes, he dreaded it. Yes, he wanted God to find another way. But in the end, he said, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Now, here's what the Word of God says. The Word of God says in Matthew 16, 24, If any man will follow me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. There are people that run from Mount Calvary. There are people that run from Golgotha. I don't want to run from it. I want to run to it. I remember the first time that I saw it. Mom and Dad were there. It was in 2004 as we stood there and looked across at the place that many scholars believe is the place. It looked like a skull. And I just started singing the old song. I've never traveled far around the world. I've never seen the many sights and thrills unfurled, but I've taken a journey of journeys for me up Calvary's mountain, my Savior, to see. I've been to Calvary. I can say I've seen the Lord. I've been to Calvary through the witness of His Word. Each day at Calvary, what a thrill of love divine just to know that Jesus is mine. They buried him in a cave 
in the guts of that mountain. But that was on Friday. But early on Sunday morning, he got up victorious out of the grave. And he spent about 40 days with his disciples telling them of the kingdom of God. And he went right back over to that Mount of Olives. And from that, he ascended to heaven with the promise, I'm coming back again. And according to the prophets, when he comes back to earth again, he's coming back and his feet are going to land right back on that Mount of Olives. And the impact of his landing will split the mountain in two. And he'll march right back across that Kidron Valley. At Kidron Valley, on the night that he was betrayed, it was, rolling, it, was, it was flooded with the red blood of the Passover lambs. And he marched through that blood across to spend all night praying in Gethsemane and then arrested and dragged back across it to be tried. But this time, he'll walk across that valley and go right up into the Temple Mount and sit down on the throne of his father David and rule the world for a thousand years in righteousness and in peace. Now here's what he said. Those that suffer with me will also reign with me. There's some people ashamed, embarrassed. They don't want to think about, they don't want to preach about, they don't want to, they don't want to, to sing about, they don't want to do anything that has to do with that rugged skull heel Galgotha. But I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. My Nana, that just Friday celebrated 64, I mean 94 years on this earth. 94 years. When I go and visit her, she always wants to sing. She doesn't want me to sing to her. She wants me to sing with her. And I got to hand it to the old gal. At 94, she still can carry a harmony note. She sure can. And we'll sing songs about heaven, and we'll, she'll get to shouting and bobbing that old head. But before it's over, she says, Britt, now sing that one that I like. And I know what she wants. She wants to sing on a hill far away. Stood an old rugged cross. The emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross for they're the dearest and best. For a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down. And I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it one day for a crown. That's one mountain, Tom, I don't want to avoid. I want to embrace. Would you stand? Gracious Father, oh Lord, That my Savior, my Lord, the King of heaven, 
would look at that rugged, stony, evil mountain. And run to it for me. That on the mountains of Moriah, where Abraham would have sacrificed his son, but prophetically said, God will provide himself a lamb. That in those rugged mountains of Moriah, you fulfilled what Father Abraham had said all of those centuries earlier. In the mountain of the Lord, it shall be seen. And you provided your own son as my lamb to take my place, to bear my sins, to pay my debt, to save my soul. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do that for someone today. In Jesus' name. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed, and every Christian is praying. Those that are saved, and you know it by the grace of God, lift your hand. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Now, as no one's looking around, if you're here and you're not a Christian, be honest with the Lord and lift your hand today. Say, pray for me. If you're not saved, if you're not a Christian, lift your hand. Thank the Lord. When I give this altar, call, I want you to come. How many more say, I'm not saved, Pastor? Now, because, because people come from different backgrounds and different ways of thinking, I want to be clear. There may be people here who says, well, I've been saved and I joined a church or I was baptized or I prayed a prayer. But you know you're not living in relationship with the Lord now. You know your life does not have the fruit of a Christian in it. You know you're not right with God. Now, if that's you, just lift your hand and say, I know I'm not, I know I'm not where I need to be with God. All right, when I give this altar call, those that raise their hands, I want you to come, and we're going to pray with you, okay? Now, everybody else, look at me. Look at me today. There's two reasons to run to Calvary. The first is to run in repentance. The next is to run in worship. And so I want everybody that will to make their way to this altar, but in your heart and mind, let this be Mount Calvary for you and worship the Son of God for saving our soul. Come from all over the building today. Come on, sing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you raise your hand that you need to be saved, come be with us. Is crowned with glory now. The Savior now.